Welcome to the Tomball Bible Church Podcast. We exist to glorify Jesus Christ by making mature disciples to reach the nations. To find out more, visit us online at tomballbible.church. Turn with me to Romans 12. Continuing our move through this transitional chapter in the book of Romans, we're going to be picking it up in verse 9 and looking at it through verse 16 this morning. But what we need to, we need to establish a few things before we really get into the text. This text is just exceedingly practical. I mean, it is just down and dirty, straightforward. Do this, don't do that. That's what we're going to receive this morning from the scriptures. And it's probably a text that most of us are accustomed to hearing preached or talked about because it's the easiest ones to apply. They're the easiest ones to understand. Um, and rightfully so. They are straightforward principles, and we love being able to do something immediately with what we hear from the Word of God. But there is a danger in hearing texts like this one and then trying to apply them. And that danger comes when we lose sight of God's order. And that's important. Within each book of the Bible, God has determined not only the content of the book, but the order in which the content is delivered. It's on purpose. So it's intentional in God's mind that Romans 12 comes after Romans 1 through 11. There's a reason it doesn't come in the middle of Romans 1 through 11 or at the beginning of that. It comes specifically at the end, and it's on purpose. It has to be that way. Otherwise, none of it makes any sense because you cannot apply something that isn't real for you. So trying to apply Romans 12 and these straightforward principles we're going to see here in a minute, trying to apply that without Romans 1 through 11 being true for you is impossible. It's impossible for somebody who does not have the gospel to be real in their lives, meaning they have not submitted to Jesus Christ as Lord and confessed with their mouth that he is that and believe in the heart that he got raised from the dead. If that's not true for you, if Romans 1 through 11 is not true, then 12 is worthless. You, you can't do it. To try to teach someone and preach to them Romans 9 through 12, 9 through 16, and then say, hey, do this, but the gospel's not true for them. It's be like trying to teach someone who can't swim how to do a flip turn at the wall for racing and relays. You can't do it. First, I need to figure out, are you a swimmer? Can you swim? If you can swim, then now we can work on a few things. But it's worthless for me to say, hey, these are the key points of the butterfly stroke if you get thrown in the water and you just sink to the bottom. You have to be able to swim first. So the same is true of a passage like this, that we can't leave the gospel in Romans 1 through 11. It's not as if the gospel is what saves us, and then after that, we just kind of like buckle down and put in our hard work and keep our nose to the grindstone, and then we finish out the rest of our Christian life like that. No, the gospel goes with us. We have to carry the gospel along with us. It informs our lives as Christian. It dictates to us how we are to behave and what is pleasing to God. The gospel follows us everywhere. Our passage this morning is eight verses, and in those eight verses are 19 commands. 19 commands, all of which are not possible for someone who has not been reborn in Christ to obey. They can't do it. It's impossible for them. The unconverted person cannot do these these commands, not in any way. And we learned so in Romans 8 a few weeks ago. Romans 8, verse 7 through 8, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Why? Because indeed it cannot. The mind of the flesh cannot, is incapable of submitting to God's law. 
And then verse 8 says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's not an option. The mind of the sin in the flesh cannot please God. So you need to hear this with all fullness. If you're here today and you don't know what it means to be saved, that just sounds like foreign lingo to you. You don't know Jesus Christ in a saving way. That is your priority on purpose. You will be unable to do any of these 19 commands in these eight verses. You can't. You must first be true of you what is true in Romans 1 through 11 that you were dead in your sins, but you've been made alive in Christ, that his righteousness has been placed upon you and you've been declared to be righteous in the sight of God, our righteous judge. But for the rest of us, those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ and do have his righteousness upon us, how do we go about rightly applying straightforward, clear commands in the scriptures? How are we supposed to do that? How do we take the gospel with us? The first way we have to take the gospel with us is that we have to understand when it comes to applying practical truths that God's love for us does not ebb and flow with our ability to keep them or not. God's love does not ebb and flow for us that we have been saved once for all. Certainly we can displease God. That's the Christian's mindset. Am I being pleasing to God? And certainly it's sinful to not obey these commands, but God's love for me is not growing or shrinking based upon my ability to do these 18 commands and the rest of the commands in the Scripture. And do you know why the God's love never changes for you? You hear that all the time. God's love never changes for you. God loves you once for all. Why is that true, though? we got to hang that, that truth on some nail in the wall. The only way that can be true is that God's love never changes for us is because we are in Jesus Christ and his love for his son can never and has never changed. You remember Romans 6 where it talks about that we have been baptized into Christ and that word means to be immersed, placed in, plunged into and surrounded on all sides by Jesus Christ. Well, the fact that God loves his son and he can't, there can't be anything but love into the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And if we've been brought into that through the person of Jesus Christ, then we are as secure as Jesus is God. His love for us doesn't change because his love for Jesus never changes. So we have to understand that when we try to apply practical things. The second way we need to embrace bringing the gospel with us into these practical commands is we have to understand a biblical perspective on personal discipline. First Timothy tells us this in verse four, chapter 4, verse 7. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Why do I discipline myself? So that I might be godly. That's why. That's why I would strive to do these commands when I don't do them, because that's God's plan for me. And that's what godliness is. I'm not just white-knuckle disciplining, making myself. I'm not going to take principles that work for me in the business world or when I was getting in shape and eating right. Those disciplines don't transfer necessarily. I'm disciplining myself for the purpose of godliness. And it's God's plan that I do that. It's even his predetermined plan. Romans 8, 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be something. To be what? To be conformed to the image of his son. That's what we were recreated to do, was to be like Jesus. We were reborn to do that. That's why we discipline ourselves for that very reason. It's God's will for us. You ever wonder what God's will is for you? 
First Timothy, First Thessalonians 4.3 says what God's will is for you. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Growing in Christ-likeness, becoming more holy. That's God's will for you, to discipline ourselves. So we know that God's love for us is fixed, but that doesn't mean that we don't strive for Christ-likeness, to be more holy, to be more obedient and pleasing. And lastly, the way that we're going to keep the gospel with us, when we seek to obey these kind of commands, uh, we don't do that merely because it makes our lives better. It certainly does. Proverbs says that, that the obedient one lives a life of peace. But it's not just that. It's that obedience is the essence of the gospel. That's what we talked about in Romans chapter 1, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. That's why Paul's doing this. Our, our big problem is we're rebels. Our big problem is that we're disobedient and we cannot obey. And we cannot obey in any way sufficient enough for Jesus to welcome us into heaven. We need somebody else's righteousness. And that's what the gospel is, is you get Jesus's righteousness put onto you in exchange for your sin. So to obey now and not, not to apply these biblical truths, that's only in keeping with the essence of the gospel. That at your trial, that's already happened if you're a Christian, God, as the judge, declared you righteous. He made that declaration. And now after that declaration, you're trying to live actively in accordance to what the judge's verdict already said. That's what we're trying to do. John MacArthur wrote it way better than I could say it. He said, in short, supernatural living, meaning what we're talking about in these verses, is conforming our outer lives to our inner lives. Living out the redeemed, purified, and holy nature we have in Jesus Christ, becoming in practice what we are in position and in new creation. That's what the gospel means in applying to our lives. And Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 1, 14-16. As obedient children, talking to Christians, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's, that's, the, that's how we take the gospel with us. It travels with us into this application, because Romans 12, 9 through 16, is all about Christian living, but particularly Christian living within the context of the church. How do Christians live together? How do Christians interact together? That's what this first section of Romans 12 is all about. These are the basics of the Christian life. There's nothing in mind-blowing complexity in here, nothing difficult to understand. These are just straightforward statements in staccato rapid fire on how Christians live. It is a fact. This is how Christians live. This is what you must be doing. So we're going to see in these verses three things, how the gospel shapes our local churches. The gospel shapes our local churches is to love Truly, in verses 9 through 10, the gospel shapes our local churches to serve fervently in 11 through 13, and the gospel shapes our local churches to live harmoniously in 14 through 16. That's what we're going to see laid out. So let's look at that first one, loving truly in 9 and 10. Verses 9 and 10, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. You remember what Jesus said to his disciples in John 13, 34 and 35? He said to them, Commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. 
By this, all people, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's the role that Jesus laid out. How did Jesus say that the whole world is going to know we are Christians? We are disciples of Jesus Christ if we love each other. He didn't say that everyone will know that you're my disciples if you feed the poor. Didn't say that. He said, everyone will know you're my disciples if you fight against the secularizing forces of Western society. Didn't say that either. He didn't even say, everyone will know you're my disciples if you love the lost. He said, if you love each other. That's where a watching pagan sinful world will say something is different about them if they love each other, that they're disciples of Jesus Christ. Well, if that's the case, then what is biblical love? We can look at a, a passage like 1 Corinthians 13. That love is patient, love is kind, it is not proud, it does not boast, it is not envious, it keeps no records of wrongs, it believes all things, hopes all things, and love never fails. So we can look at there for a definition, but we can also remember just what Jesus said. He said, even as I have loved you, that's how you love each other. How did Jesus love his disciples? I mean, he told them the truth. He gave them eternal life through himself. He provided for them, he blessed them. He gave them, I mean, all those great things. But didn't he also yell at Peter in Matthew 16 and say, get behind me, Satan? And didn't he also in Matthew chapter 16 express his frustration with them not being where they should have? The disciples should have understood what he was talking about, but they thought he was talking about carrying extra bread. So Jesus' love is not specious. Jesus' love is genuine. Jesus' love is not a lie or ingenuine like skim milk. It's real and true like 2% milk. Amen? That's what we're talking about. Genuine love in verse 9. Let love be genuine. That word genuine comes from the root word where we get the word, it's root word from Greek where we get the word hypocrite. And so it's, it's, it means your Bible might say, let love be without hypocrisy. Let love be genuine. You know what a hypocrite, that, that, that idea comes from ancient Greece, uh, the theater that when they would have these ancient dramas and they would play them out, they would hold masks in front of their faces that had expressions on them. And so they would have an expression on the mask, but it wasn't true behind the mask. They weren't really sad and frowny the whole time, but that's their character. So that word comes from that is don't be like that. Don't portray something that isn't real within you. Your love needs to be without hypocrisy. It needs to be genuine. It needs to be authentic. Now, what that also doesn't mean is that now we're free to be real. Hey, I don't care. I'm just being real. I can just treat you like garbage. I'm being real. I'm being authentic. No, you're not free to do that either. That this is called to love. Let love be genuine. You're to be loving and genuine. You're not free to be a jerk because that's who you are. And genuine love, what does it say, hates what is evil. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. That's what genuine love does. It hates what is evil. One commentator wrote, love is not a directionless emotion, but a moral orientation to kingdom values. Think about that. Love is not directionless emotion. I just don't feel gooey towards everybody with no purpose or meaning. No, it's an orientation morally towards God's values. That's what love is. Another commentator wrote that love cannot be reduced to sentimentalism that it's just feeling warm and fuzzy. That's not what biblical love is. Biblical love, according to Paul, is hating evil, abhorring evil. It is not loving to call something that's evil good and then tolerate it. That's not loving. 
We are to vehemently dislike that which is evil according to the Bible. And within the church is what the context is. That's what we do in the church. It is unloving to tolerate evil within the church. That's what we're laid out here in the scriptures. R.C. Sproul talking about that. That this is hypocritic love to tolerate evil. R.C. Sproul writing, he said, the hatred about which Paul writes is hatred of the highest dimension. That's the word he's using. Highest dimension of hatred. He uses one of the strongest words for hatred found anywhere in the Bible. The word implies not mild displeasure or mere dislike. Paul is commanding in the name of the Lord that we loathe evil. We are to see evil as an unveiled assault on the character of God and his sovereignty. That's what evil is. It's not just icky and makes me feel uncomfortable. It's not just an alternative lifestyle that I'm not okay with. It's an unveiled assault on God's character. And we have to hate that as Christians. But love is not lopsided. We abhor what is evil, but we cling to what is good or hold fast to what is good. That's the word, the Greek word that points back to the word glue. I'm stuck irremovably from what is good. Whatever God calls good, it is exceedingly loving to cling to that, to hold to that, to not let it get pride out of our hands. We hold and we love what is good, cling to it. And our love is inherently familial. If it's going to be true, if it's going to be genuine, it has to be like a family. Verse 10 says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. The love we have in the church is familial because this is the household of God. According to 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, the household of God, which is the church. Church is called a household. It's a family. Brotherly love is what we have. And you don't love family for any other reason but that they're family. You don't love family because they're attractive or they have money or they have power or they make you laugh or you like them or they just have a way about them. You love family because they're family. You just do. That's the essence of what it is to be a family is you just love each other. We love each other like family. Have you ever noticed whenever I say, when I'm up here talking and I say brothers and sisters, I don't do that because it's a requirement to graduate from a Baptist seminary. You have to call everybody brothers and sisters. I do that because that's who we are. We are brothers and sisters inherently. We're, we're on the same level as siblings. We don't have fathers and uncles and aunts and cousins in the family of God. We have brothers and sisters and one father. That's who we all are. That's why old churches have done that for forever. It's to drop handles. I don't have to say doctor this or PhD that or Esquire that or MD this or PE that. It's just brother. It's just sister. That's who we are. That we're just, we're siblings. Equal as siblings. And you don't get to choose your siblings, do you? Some of you wish you could, but you can't. The only one who had any choice in that family was your dad. Because he went and found a woman, and then they decided together to have kids. And so we, as a family, we have one father, he decided to have kids, and we don't get to pick anybody else. We're all here because God chose us and had grace upon us as siblings toward each other. And we show brotherly affection. And how we do that, the verse goes on and says, outdo one another in showing honor. Imagine this. If you don't have kids, imagine that you did. And if you have kids that are all gone, imagine that they're home. And if you have kids that are at home, imagine they're sitting at the table and not throwing food. You're all sitting around the table and one sibling just stands up in the middle of everything and says amazingly nice things about his sister. 
He just gets up and goes, she is so smart. She is so capable. I see her character shining. I see her doing the right thing. She's so honorable. I love her just for who she is. And all, he just goes on and on and on and on. And then he goes, and you know what? And then he just leaves the table and starts doing her chores. He's picking up her clothes. He's doing all the work. He's doing her homework. You don't even need to do this, sister. I'm going to do this for you. That's how highly I think of you. That's how highly all of you should think of her. He just keeps going on and on. What would you do? I'll tell you what you would do. Your aorta would seize up and you would die right there. That's what would happen to you. But, but wouldn't you love that? Outdoing each other and showing honor that we're racing for the opportunity to share how great we think everybody else is in the church. That's what we do as brothers and sisters. But like in a, I mean, in a marriage, it would be the same thing. Like what wife would ever say, you know what? It really annoys me when my husband just goes on and on for hours about how much he loves me and how great I am and, and how much he respects me and how much he upholds me. And no husband would say the same thing about their wife, that we would all appreciate that. We would love that. But you know what? Eventually, somebody's got to get up and do the dishes. Somebody's got to go out and rake the leaves because love that's genuine actually does something. And that's how we get to verses 11 through 13, that the church being shaped by the gospel serves fervently. The church is not an insufferable band of hippies locked in a perennial cosmic group hug. That's not who we are. We're also not a group of college kids sitting around the dorm in the common room and couches that face each other just smiling and saying, love you, man. That's not what we are either. We do something. Genuine love does something. It serves. That's what it does. Genuinely, Christ-like love serves because that's what Jesus did. Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the hallmark of Jesus Christ. We serve. The Christian life is a life of selfless service. How did Paul introduce himself in Romans? Do you remember Romans 1-1? Paul, a bond servant of Jesus Christ. That's the first thing he says about himself. I am a servant. Jesus is curios, I am doulos. He, Jesus is Lord, I am slave. That's the bondservant life of a Christian. That's how we are. That's how we exist, and that's inherently countercultural. Let me read you one of the most countercultural verses in your scriptures. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus is teaching his disciples, and he goes off on kind of a tangent and explains what a servant is and what we should be thinking of ourselves as, as servants. He says in Luke 17, verse 7, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? Verse 10, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Does that sound like our culture? I, I don't want any hand clapping or praising. No, we want, we want to get praised and applauded for brushing our teeth and not cheating on our taxes. We think those are noteworthy things that we should be praised for. That's just doing what you should do. That's just a normal response. That's what we're supposed to look at ourselves as, as Christians, as we're servants. But our service is transformed. It's different. Verse 11 of Romans 12. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. 
serve the Lord. Our service is not casual or uh, just kind of squeeze it in wherever I can get it. That's not how we serve each other. That's not how we serve the Lord. It's fervent. That word for fervent has the connotation of heat. That Be boiling over in spirit is what you could read that as. Or let the flames burn highly in your spirit. Not flames in a bad way, but flames like in a, in a cooking way. This is going to do something productive and good for everyone. That's how we serve, not slothful in zeal. We don't just casually squeeze Christ in and serving him. We do it enthusiastically. We should be excited about it. It's the greatest thing we get to do. The gospel shapes the culture of a church and the way that it serves because we don't do ministry as it comes. We actively seek it out. Isn't that the kind of employee you want? All those who you employ people? Don't you have, the, you have an employee? That, I mean, this is a great employee that they, they do exactly what you tell them to do and they do it how you told them to do it and in the time you told them to do it in. You're, that's an amazing employee. You're great with that one. You can have them around for forever. But what about the employee who does all of that, the, exactly what you told them to do, how you told them to do it, and when you told them to do it by, but then when they finish, they go and help somebody else. They see somebody else in their department who's lagging. I'm going to go build them up. I'm going to go figure out how we can make that. You know what? I noticed that we could be more productive if we changed this little part in this department. That would increase profit revenue, and that would do all of these things. Don't you love that? That's the person you promote all the way to the top, and then you go on vacation. That's the kind of person you would want working for you, so why would we serve Christ any less? Why would we give any less than that to the one who died for us? What other way would even be fitting? Did Jesus nonchalantly serve by going to the cross? Was it the casual just, I guess I'll just die on the cross. Yeah, sure, let's do that. No. So then why would we nonchalantly, casually, just kind of as we have time, serve him in response? No, it's fervent, not slothful. As we serve the Lord and we rejoice, verse 12, after getting fired up about service in verse 11, verse 12 is what carries you through that service. Verse 12 says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Because serving God is hard. And it's always a lot longer than we think it's going to be. So we need hope. We need, we need joy. We need patience. And we need prayer. We need to be able to rejoice in hope. Because our lifetime of service is, is a lifetime. And service can be discouraging, can it? There's always more to do. There's always one more meal you can feed the homeless. There's always one more child that needs to be saved from some kind of slave trade. There's always one more person that needs to hear the gospel. There's always one more person that needs to be discipled. It it can feel discouraging, like we're never making a dent in anything. What's my life even amounting to? That's why we need hope. Biblical Christian hope is not wishful thinking that might come about or might not. Biblical Christian hope is a confident assurance of a coming reality. This is going to be true, and it is going to come. It's just not here yet. That's biblical Christian hope, and that's inherently anchored in Christ. Hebrews will tell us that. That Christ is our hope. We have hope that one day is coming when all of that evil will go away, that all of our striving will end, that we will be where we're supposed to be, and that hope strengthens us to endure because tribulation is coming. It always is. Every Christian is either in a trial, coming out of a trial, or going into a trial. That's just the life of a Christian. That's just the life that we've been given. We need patience to be developed in that. And we can't develop that patience without prayer. Do you see what verse 12 says? Prayer. Without prayer, we shrivel up and we fade away. 
Prayer is absolutely essential, but we neglect it so much. There's a book that all of you should get by Donald Whitney, a book called Spiritual Disciplines. And in the prayer section, he wrote this. He said, God also expects us to pray just as a general expects to hear from his soldiers in the battle. Prayer is a walkie-talkie for warfare, not a domestic intercom for increasing our conveniences. To abandon prayer is to fight the battle with our own resources at best and to lose interest in the battle at worst. Hear that? This is not, prayer is not just, hey, increase my conveniences, God. It's I'm in war and I need help. And if I'm not praying, that either means I think I'm sufficient on my own or I don't even care that we're in a battle. In fact, I don't think I'm in a battle and I'm not in the battle, which is worse. God sovereignly uses tribulation to drive us to him in prayer. He uses pain to drive us to him in prayer, to knit our soul with his. Prayer is just inherently humbling because what are you having to do when you pray? You're having to admit, I am weak, I am not my own authority, and I can't make this good thing come about or this bad thing go away on my own. That's what you're having to do. It's inherently humbling. You're acknowledging that you are not the authority, but God is the authority, and nothing will happen unless God has decided to do it. That it humbles us gratefully, but we don't always just come so browbeaten into prayer. We're coming because Jesus asked us to. Have you ever considered that? John 16, 24, Jesus says to his disciples, up until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be made full. Notice there's no time limit on how much you ask or how long you ask. And no definition on what joy made full is, is his definition and not ours. But he are invited by the Son of God to pray. And that's what we have to do in order to endure in this Christian life, in order to serve fervently. And in our fervent service, as we try to have genuine love, where do we start? Verse 13 gives us a clue when it says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. In our fervent service that's carried along by our hope in Christ, that's flowing out of a genuine and true love, we start with the needs of the church. Why? That sounds backwards to kind of the ideology that's going on today, but remember, how did Jesus say that the pagan, godless world is going to know that we are his disciples? By loving each other. That the world is supposed to look on and think, you know, whatever, say whatever you want about those Christians, but none of them are going without. When it floods our city, none of them end up homeless. They keep taking care of each other. They, I mean, say what you want about them or whatever they believe, or what they think about this and that and the other, but they're all taken care of. They all have their needs met. Now, they may not all be billionaires, but none of them are starving. None of them are lonely. None of them are abandoned. You know what? I like that. I want to be like that. That group must be different than Kiwanis. It must be different than the Lions Club. It must be different than our PTO because they treat each other so differently. I want that. That's what the watching world should say because we contribute to the needs of the saints. Galatians 6.10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Especially to Christians is what it says. Because it starts in here and then it flows out to the lost. 
then it flows out to everyone else. Then it makes sense as to why the lost would want to come here. You know, I heard a pastor one time years ago, I was visiting my sister in Dallas at Watermark Church, and the pastor got up, his name's Todd Wagner, godly man, godly pastor, uh, and they have a really big church in the big middle part of, the, of uh, Dallas, and he was talking about this scam that had been going on, that, that you know, the Watermark's a big church, they have like t-shirts and stickers and all this kind of stuff, and um, that there were, there were panhandlers just out around the city that when they would see a Watermark sticker or a, a T-shirt or whatever it was, they would come up and go, oh, you go to Watermark? I do too. Oh, it's so great. Isn't Pastor Todd so awesome? Oh, man, hey, actually, yeah, could you help me out? I need some money. I'm out of gas. Or They were using the church as a scam. And these well-meaning believers in this church were like, oh, okay, yeah, you go to my church. Man, that's fantastic. I'm going to help you out. But they didn't go to the church in any way. And, and, and then when he was talking about this from up front, He said as clear as a bell, I'll never forget it. He said, if you are a member of this church and you are serving in this church, you are accountable here, you're blessing other people here, your needs will be met. You will not go without. As as far as we are able to do that, if you are a vibrant and active member of this church, you will be taken care of. I'll never forget that. That's what the church does. We contribute to the needs of the saints. That's what we do first. And then we go out for altruistic reasons out to everyone, regardless of what they believe. But we start here. It has to start here. Otherwise, it can't exist out there in any way. And we're to make it a point to be hospitable in that, contributing to the needs and being hospitable. Hospitality is difficult. Hospitality is a weak spot for me. I've been trying to work on this for years, and I mean, my wife almost passed out the first time I said, hey, I invited somebody over for dinner. She Because <laughs> she loves being hospitable. But that's the mark of a Christian. Welcome. Come into our home. Not just have some of my resources, but don't touch me. It's come, have my resources, but come and be welcome here. That's what the church does, especially to each other. We have each other over. We share what we have. We help each other when we're down. We're hospitable. We aren't reluctantly opening up our homes. We aren't reluctantly, reluctantly opening up our church gatherings. We're doing that with all joy. We're thrilled. And we're to live harmoniously. That's what that, that, that genuine love and fervent service flows into a harmonious living because in those moments, that all implies a lot of interpersonal workings, right? A lot of conversations, a lot of rubbing shoulders. And is it possible that well-meaning Christians can get crossways with each other? Is that what we're saying? If we're being told to be harmonious, is it possible that in our desire to love genuinely and serve fervently, we can wrong each other? We can get crossways? Absolutely. That's absolutely possible. So what do we do when that happens? We work hard for harmony. Harmony. Every voice singing the same lyrics in the same tune, But you know what? Sometimes it's in the same key, but it's different notes. Sometimes that person next to you is singing a different note. We're in the same key. We're singing the same words. And I need to have room in my mind and in my heart for different notes to live harmoniously. That's what we do as the church. We're a gospel-shaped church, has the same Bible, but they have unique personalities. That's how God designed it. That's beautiful. Just like the previous paragraph, talking about the body, that's what we have to expect. Different functions, same body. Same blood flowing through every part, 
but different functions. So but what do we do when one foot trips the other foot or the, the teeth bite down on the tongue or the, the spine slips a disc? What do we do when there's strife within the body? Verse 14 gives us clarity. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. You see in that verse, we are never given the green light to retaliate. The scriptures are void of any commendation of retaliation. They're just not there. God never says, you can hurt them back, but only as bad as they hurt you. That is an Islamic idea. Hurt them back, but just don't go any further. We'll restrain it at that point. That's Muslim. We bless those who persecute us. When we are mistreated, the only Christian response is to bless that person within the church. Only reason, only response is to bless them. Retaliation, vengeance, settling the score are anti-Christian ideas. They're anti-Christian in every way. Your retaliation is never justified. Your retaliation never pleases God. Never. Why is that? Because it's inherently unchristlike. Imagine, if you will, Jesus' trial, mock trial, at the middle of the night, and they're, they're slapping him in the face and they're punching him. What if Jesus is just taking swings back at him? Doesn't that make you sick to think about? What if when he's being beaten with rods, he fights one of the Roman soldiers, grabs the rod, and starts beating him back? What if when he's hanging on the cross and everybody's coming by and mocking him and spitting at him and cursing at him, Jesus is mocking, cursing, and spitting from the cross? that make your stomach sick to think about that? So why would we behave any differently, especially towards those within the church? We bless those who mistreat us. That's why strife and retaliation in the church is so damaging to the witness of the church. Because then the watching world can go, I knew it, just like us. That's exactly how my Rotary Club is. That's exactly how all the other groups I'm a part of is. They're the exact same thing. The only difference is, is they pretend they're not. We're at least honest. That's why it's so damaging to the reputation. Luke 6, 32 through 33, Jesus speaks to this. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same, but you don't know how badly I've been mistreated. You're right, I don't. But God does. And in his infinite, perfect, and all-knowing mind, he made a blanket statement to Christians. Those who persecute you, you bless them. It's incontrovertible. You do not retaliate. And if a Christian still wants to hold on to the retaliation and say this is a God-sanctioned response that I have right now, then you need to answer one question. Are you being treated worse than Jesus was? And if you say yes, then we need to have another conversation about your soul. The answer is no. You're not being mistreated more than Jesus was. He blessed and prayed for those who cursed him and who hated him and who beat him. And he didn't wait till they deserved it. He didn't say, hey, Lord, in a little while, some of these guys will repent and then go ahead and remind me to pray for them, to forgive them and bless them. No, he says, while they're killing him, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That's the, that's the life of a Christian. The standard within the church is higher than it is anywhere else. It just is. That's the standard is higher for all of us because we're shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And for those within the church, retaliation is not understandable. It is always sinful. We do the opposite, in fact. In verse 15, it says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We don't retaliate, we sympathize. That's what we do. That's the response of a Christian. That's the life of the church. That this command in verse 15 is nothing less than empathize with them. Change your mood to feel what they're feeling. That's what we're being told to do. But that's what how, that's how family is, right? Whenever, I mean, whenever a kid comes home, the son comes home with a good grade, everybody's excited. Yeah, way to go. But when the daughter comes home sad because she got picked on, everybody feels bad and, and goes to her and firms her and builds her up. I rejoice with something that happens good to somebody else. I'm not jealous because you got a promotion. I rejoice. And when something bad happens, something tragic happens in your life, we don't go, oh, we got to avoid that. I don't want to mess with that. That seems really sad. We move towards that. We sit in the ash heap with them right where they are. That's what families do. It's the heartbeat of a family. We feel what they feel. And sometimes in a church our size, that can mean an emotional roller coaster. It just can. I mean, sometimes you're shaking hands. You're going, wow, you just got engaged. It's so exciting. Or, oh, wow, you got a promotion. That's amazing. And then you turn around to greet the people behind you, and they just got diagnosed with cancer. Or they just had a miscarriage. But that's what we do as the church. We rejoice with those who rejoice, and we weep with those who weep. All those who weep. All those who rejoice. That's the life of the church. That distinguishes us from everybody else and points out that we are the people of God because we don't ricochet off of each other. I'm not glancing off you trying not to get what you have on me, and I'm not bouncing off you because I'm mad at you. No, we're like a pond, and if a concrete block gets dropped somewhere in that water, we all feel the waves, and we all move towards that person that's hurting, or we all celebrate with that person that's excited. That's what a family does, what the church does. We live in harmony with one another. To summarize that, verse 16 says, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Living in harmony is good. That's God's design. We're all different for a reason. Because God wanted to hear an orchestra, not just a trumpet line. The fullness of the music, that we all have the same God, we all have the same Bible, but we all have different strengths and weaknesses. We all have different maturity levels. We all have different personalities. If you don't have a variety of colors, what you have is not a painting. What you have is a blank canvas. But we're after a painting. You know what you call a group that everybody looks exactly the same, everybody behaves exactly the same, they wear the same clothes, talking the same things, do the exact same thing. You know what they call that? That's a cult. We're not a cult. We're the body of Christ. So we live harmoniously. And this is harmonious unity, not rigid uniformity. It's different than that. Living in harmony can also be translated be of the same mind. And what's the best way to be of the same mind with someone? To be on the same page with them. And we're on the same page because we all believe the same pages are inspired. That we have harmony. We can be of the same mind because I don't have to be a mind reader. I have to say, hey, we all acknowledge this as the, as the rule and authority in the church, correct? Great. Now we're all functioning in the same way. We all have the same truth. We're all singing the same lyrics. That's how we have the same mind. That's the gift of the scriptures to us. And harmony is largely achieved when nobody thinks that they're better than anybody else. So verse 16 says, Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. 
I see that in our church in a lot of ways. We got people with PhDs and men who own their own businesses that they're they're teaching Sunday school and making coffee for everybody. And we got moms who have their own kids volunteering to watch your kids during service. If that ain't self-sacrificial love, then I don't know what is. I mean, that, that's, that's thinking less of yourself and more of everybody else. That's not thinking too highly of yourself. We have to continually grow in that. That nobody's beneath us and no person's beneath us. We don't think too highly of ourselves in any way. That's a church that's being shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, after reading all of those, don't you feel pathetic? I do. I spent a whole week just being absolutely miserable, and I figured I'd come share the wealth with you guys. Because I read all these commands and just dwelt on them for all week. I'm like, I'm basically 0 for 19, as far as being perfect in that. And now i got to come and i got to preach this? What in the world? Thank goodness that we're allowed to preach better than we can live. Because the Word of God is above us. And if I could perfectly do it, then it would be beneath me. We fall short of God every way. If I had to preach everything that I could perfectly live, I'd have one sermon for you. And it wouldn't be good. It'd be 2 Kings 2, 2. Or 2 Kings chapter 2 later on where Elisha calls out those bears to come and maul those boys for making fun of him for being bald. I've only successfully been bald. That's all I got from the Scriptures. Done. Corrected all the way through. You'd hear that one every single Sunday. So we preach better than we can live, but that doesn't mean that we love that hypocrisy. That doesn't mean we tolerate that hypocrisy and go, well, what are you going to do? I'm not perfect, so none of us are. No, no, no. We, we hate the hypocrisy that's in us. We want to put it to death, and we want to strive towards scraping away those layers of hypocrisy. That somebody could look at you and say, hey, that person... They love genuinely. They do abhor evil. They do cling to what is good. They are contributing to the needs of the saints. They are rejoicing in hope. That person has hope. We want it to be said of us. So how do we do that? How do we run at 19 commands and we're not even done with this chapter? Well, you have to do it one at a time. You might die before you figure out all 19 of them. But you might be able to handle one. You might run after one. And give that time, effort, prayer, accountability, study in the scriptures on it. So do that. Don't be overwhelmed by this, but just do that. This is not a legalism thing. This is a love thing. Because Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We just love Jesus. We're just trying to love Jesus Christ by doing these 19 things. And a Christian, of course, we're willing to obey Jesus. What, what did he hold back from us? What did he not freely give us? He gave us everything. And all we had to do was give him our faith and trust, make him Lord. And then he gives us all. We could do that. And we can hold each other accountable to that and support each other in it as a church. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. To find out more, visit us online at tomballbible.church.